Welcome to Risk Roundup. The promise of genomic medicine is here. It seems that across nations, thousands of individuals are already being diagnosed, treated, or are having their treatment changed based on the information gathered from their individual genome. This is possible. It has become possible due to the advances in technology and speed of DNA sequencing and analysis, which now permits real-time disease diagnosis helping it to move into the clinical workflow and decision-making process. The increasing availability of thousands of genomic tests for disease diagnosis and several targeted drug therapies and use of pharmacogenomic data for drug and dosage selection implies that genomics is on its way to getting integrated into healthcare delivery model across many nations. This brings us the real potential to change healthcare from being reactive care to truly preventive care that is personalized. To discuss genomic medicine further, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Dave Moskowitz to Risk Roundup. Dr. Moskowitz is the CEO and Chief Medical Officer of Genomed Inc. and is based in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Moskowitz. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. I'm honored to be on Risk Roundup. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So it seems that genomics is already impacting healthcare. How do you see it shaping healthcare in the coming years? Well, I think actually that genomics, um, it, it, people know about genomics, but I do primary care internal medicine every day. And I don't think genomics has made any intrusion whatsoever into the clinic. And the little bit that it is intruding, like in uh, companion diagnostics for very expensive oncology drugs, I think that's the wrong way uh, to expect genomics to help us. I think what genomics is going to do is actually prevent most diseases in the way that the SOC polio vaccine eliminated a, a terror for children for hundreds of years. I think uh, basically healthcare is going to be revolutionized by genomics, but not by anything that anybody's seen so far. Oh, that's interesting to know because uh, the data and the reports uh, uh, that are you know available they show that it ha it is making an impact. But uh, I hear your point that for where it is used, like in cancer research and cancer diagnosis, there are some areas where it is used, but it's very infrequently. And like you said, that there is no awareness. Not many people are still you know uh, interested to know what their personal genomic data. Uh, you know, tells them and how, based on that, how to change their behavior. And you are right that insurance companies still are not aggressively promoting for genomic data to treat any disease. We are still looking into evidence-based medicine and there is still not that much awareness. So we have a long way to go, but it seems that based on the data that where the genomic medicine can uh, impact, there is a potential there, there is powerful potential. So from your assessment, do you think the healthcare industry is not viewing genomic medicine as an opportunity to reshape their failing model? Because it seems all the data indicates that the current healthcare model is failing. So why is the healthcare community not taking this opportunity to reshape their failing model? Um, well, let's go back to the, to the SOC um, polio vaccine. Uh, imagine uh, if all of healthcare were the iron lung manufacturers and the doctors who ran the polio wards. And, uh, and let's say uh, 
uh, they see genomics coming. And basically what genomics does is finally give us the dramatis personae, the, the genes that are actually involved in a disease, the steps uh, in the disease pathway. Um, so this is the first time in medicine that we'll even know what causes a disease. We've been basically just throwing drugs blindly at patients up to now and hoping that something good happens as opposed to all the toxicities that most drugs bring with them. But what genomics really promises to do is eliminate the iron lungs, eliminate the polio wards, and keep kids playing in the streets for the rest of their lives. Healthcare does not want that to happen. And that's why you're seeing these sort of um, intrusions of genomics at the frills, uh, you know, in ways that only add to the extreme cost of healthcare, instead of inserted basically into the into the public health foundation and getting rid of hospitals altogether and shifting healthcare totally to the outpatient setting. And that's the promise that genomics has and is actually over 20 years overdue in delivering. Yes, very true. And uh, our current model is more or less, you know, to manage the symptoms, to ease the pain, not focused. Uh, like you said, you know, we don't, we didn't know so far enough to treat the disease properly from the root cause. And that's why, you know, we were throwing all kinds of drugs and all kinds of uh, treatment options without understanding how it's going to impact the body or how it's going to damage the body uh, because of the toxicity, toxicity, like you just said. And uh, it is not now with this, you know, the central objective of human genetic research seems to be to identify the sequence variation that plays a causal role in the development of any human disease and then to use this information to generate insights into the biology of health and diseases that can support the clinical translation. Now, it's, is the human genetic research data sufficient to understand human diseases so far? Because it's not just the genetic data, there's so much more that uh, even if we have a gene, even if there is a gene for causing cancer or uh, causing any other disease, if just focusing on the gene, is that enough to you know go forward with uh, uh, treating the disease? Well, in my experience, it is. So um, in 1993, uh, I was working on renal hypertrophy, on uh, the, the biological program that causes one kidney to get larger when you take out the other kidney. It's the reason why anybody who donates a kidney doesn't go into, onto dialysis right away because the kidney that remains actually gets 50% bigger. So the idea was I'd find out what the renotropin was, the growth factor that made the kidney bigger. And then I'd give it to people who had chronic renal failure and try to get a little bit more time out of their failing kidneys. To make a seven-year story short, the, the growth factor, angiotensin II, is actually what causes the kidney damage in the long run. And I found this out by looking at a single polymorphism, like you say, a variant in the genome in a single gene. And it was the ACE gene, the angiotensin-1 converting enzyme gene. And ACE inhibitors have been around for since the late 70s. And almost anybody with high blood pressure has probably taken an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril. They all end in pril, like captopril or enalapril. So 
what we found was that overactivity of ACE, the, the deletion deletion genotype that a French group, Pierre Corval and his associates had worked up, had discovered and, and shown the physiological effect of that. Um, and they had also shown that, that DD was overrepresented among heart attack victims in, uh, in European whites. So what we did was um, genotype uh, 10 and a half thousand patients at the St. Louis VA at City Hospital, which is primarily a black hospital, and at a dialysis unit, a uh, company that had 4,000 dialysis patients. And what we found was basically two thirds of diseases are associated with the ACE-DD genotype. In other words, overactivity of ACE and presumably um, excess levels of angiotensin II, the product of ACE, are somehow associated with um, most common diseases, especially renal failure, which was my interest as a nephrologist. So nephrologists had already been using ACE inhibitors for 10 years by then. So the only thing that I could conclude was maybe they were using the wrong ACE inhibitor because historically captopril came out first and then enalapril and then lisinopril and people switched to whatever was cheapest. And, um, and in fact, that's why everybody's on lisinopril now because uh, it got the managed care contracts in the US at least. So, um, but maybe, maybe there were better ACE inhibitors than lisinopril for kidney failure. And the other thing was maybe the dose was wrong. So at least I had the, the gene, but, and we had the, the drugs available. They were cheap. They were most of them becoming generic. Um, and they were really quite safe, safer than aspirin. And so I started out with Ramapril, which was one of the newer ones. It had certain advantages. It was hydrophobic. Um, it didn't work. And then I used Quinapril, which just happened to be on the formulary and was no trouble at all to order, as opposed to Ramapril, where I had to go through paperwork every time I, I wanted to order it. Quinapril at high doses turns out to reverse kidney failure in diabetes, hypertension, and um, probably additional rarer diseases. But the one disease it doesn't do anything for is polycystic kidney disease. So that's sort of my negative control. But diabetes and hypertension cause 90% of dialysis worldwide. So I published my first 1,000 patients in um, 2002, and I thought it would be front page news because dialysis is a horrible health burden. It's the most expensive condition in healthcare. Each dialysis patient costs $100,000 a year for the average of three years that they're alive. It's not a very satisfactory treatment because, uh, because the mortality is so high. And uh, for sure, um, third world countries, developing countries, where people were living past 40 now um, and getting tons of, of hypertension and diabetes, they surely would not be able to afford to dialyze everybody who needed one. For example, India is supposed to have 300 million diabetics. Half of them will go on dialysis. China, the same thing. We have uh, 20 million diabetics in the US and 60 million hypertensives. Out of those 80 million people, 
um, we dialyze a new 100,000 people every year, and then 100,000 people also die. So the numbers are, are keeping pretty much constant around um, 450,000 people dialyzed every year. Well, India is going to have maybe 15 times that number because of the very high rate of diabetes in the country. There's no way that India can afford 15 times 35 billion, which is what we spend every year on dialysis. So you'd think they would use this paper, which is 15 years old, but no. The nephrologists who advised Prime Minister Modi um, have convinced him to build 2,000 dialysis units, which is less than half the number we have in the U.S. It's going to be a drop in the bucket. Most people in India are still going to die of renal failure. And India doesn't have the money to even support the 2,000 dialysis units that they're building. It, what it amounts to is a huge wealth transfer between poor Indians who are paying taxes to funnel money into nephrologist pockets. It's way, it doesn't make any public health sense. All it makes is great financial sense. And that's what's happened to healthcare in the 60 years since Jonas Salk. Healthcare now only cares about money and it has given up any pretense whatsoever uh, about public health. It has become anti-innovative. Nobody has yet heard of my 2002 paper, even though I've been you know, knocking on doors, journalists, physicians, professional groups every day for the last 15 years. I went to Medicare in October of 2004 to tell them about my paper and, and they had absolutely no interest because they would lose all their jobs. There are tens of thousands of bureaucrat jobs, bureaucratic jobs that depend on dialysis. And so everybody's salary depends on it. The fact that it is mostly killing people of color, that Hispanics, African-Americans, people of African ancestry go on the machine three to five times more than whites doesn't seem to ring any alarm bells. And so I've talked to the Office of Minority Affairs at the NIH, and I've talked to um, I've talked to La Raza and CORE and NAACP and a hundred black men of St. Louis and Atlanta and so forth. And so, in a, in addition to healthcare having become totally corrupt, there is its prestige has never been higher. So nobody questions what healthcare is doing. And, uh, and what they're obviously doing is taking no advantage whatsoever of genomics. The only advantage they're going to take of it is to build, is to have crony scientists build these biobanks. That's what we're waiting the next 10 years for, um, is, you know, the people who have the samples now are getting several hundred million dollars to, I don't know, make new barcodes for them or something. And even though there are dozens of countries with biobanks that haven't solved a single disease, that is the sum total of genomic research in the U.S. right now. And instead of preventing cancer, which, which we can do, my company can predict two-thirds of cancer, instead of that, the American Cancer Society and the NCI have no interest in predicting cancer early and cutting it out when it's tiny, which is the only rationale that makes sense. But instead, they're, they're focusing on tumor mutations, uh, you know, 
third and fourth and fifth generation mutations that will require ever more expensive and ever more toxic chemotherapy drugs so that you can eke out another three weeks survival. That is so, so that is the, you, you I think, uh, spoke of the heart of the problem that the industry faces, that it has become profit-centric model. It has always focused and is still focusing on supporting or protecting the supply chain or who makes money. And like you said, is bureaucratic and there is no room for really innovative approaches or there is no desire to solve the healthcare problems. That is the you know heart of the problem that we are facing. And I am really surprised and stunned that in spite of uh, such promising data that you got from your research and you published it, that it is not, it has, like you said, it has not become a headline news. And that is a cause of concern that there is so much innovation happening, not just by you, but many, many scientists and many doctors all across nations, which can make a dent in the problem, you know, which can solve the problem, which can solve not all, but solve many problems that the healthcare industry faces. But that, you know, all those efforts, all those publication, all that is just uh, intellectual property is just uh, lying there and nobody is using that effectively to transform the healthcare industry but we are in a different time frame now because of the digital data and because of the advances happening because of the ai and because of many many other technologies we are probably in a new time frame where people you know the decision makers are not going to be the same so the healthcare problems are not going to be solved just by the healthcare industry they will be solved by other industries technology you know industry and technology transformation will take place so there is a hope what i would say is that there is a hope you have done promising research and uh, that needs to uh, there is need a strong need for awareness people need to see and if you have this uh, data that renal failure can be reversed by all means we need to you know take a serious look at that and we need to see what is possible and what we can do to prevent all these you know diabetic cases and you know all this uh, the lifestyle that you know every individuals you know are losing because of the chronic uh, nature of the disease we have to see how we can reverse that but uh, that is going to require a lot of effort and you know that is the goal of risk roundup that we create this we raise education and awareness about these critical risks that are facing you know uh, not only the governments but industries organizations academy and individuals and how we can identify this risk like you just identified one very critical risk that in spite of us having a promising data nothing is happening nobody is paying attention to it so we would we are making an effort to raise awareness about this critical risk and uh, we hope that you know decision makers wherever you know across nations are able to uh, you know they are watching this or they listen to this risk roundup uh, podcast episode that they you know do something about it and make a difference now let's go back to talking about the uh, human disease genomics the state current state where do you think that the progress is happening or progress has been made well, I think it's in the germline. I think anybody who's looking at germline variants um, is going to hit clinical pay dirt. And everybody who's looking at tissue genes, uh, which is basically all of oncology, 
is um, gets all the press, but ultimately is going to um, to lose clinically. So all disease starts in the germline. It starts with the DNA message that that every cell has, and um, and it's certainly easier to focus on the tumor, but but it but it it kind of represents a a failure to appreciate exactly what cancer is. So cancer has been treated along the infectious disease model since the 40s, since Emil Fry found that um, that antifolates um, would interfere with white cell proliferation and leukemias. And so tumors have been essentially treated as if they were rapidly dividing bacteria. And the whole goal of oncology was to find poisons that would selectively trip up the, the cancer cell while leaving normal cells alone. The problem is that cancer cells are actually the same as normal cells. Uh, they use a little more sugar than most normal cells do, but otherwise they have exactly the same proteins in them that normal cells do. And this infectious disease, um, you know, kill it kind of mentality is not really appropriate for something like cancer. So what we found um, is that uh, we found about 5,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms, not like the ALU insertion in the ACE gene, but these are now single letter differences, often in the promoters of genes, uh, not so much uh, in the amino acid coding sequence of genes, they, they may actually be neutral uh, polymorphisms that don't change the amino acid at all, which is another problem that oncology and gen genomicists in general are looking at coding sequence changes, which basically never happen. It's the wrong tree to bark under. Um, so the, the, the real place to find disease-associated SNPs are in introns and in in places of the genome that don't affect the actual sequence of the protein that is made, but in ways that we still don't understand affects the expression of that gene, of that protein, how much is made, how rapidly it's spliced, how efficiently it's translated, things like that, things that we don't know about yet. And we'll take another 50 or 100 years to figure out all the nuances. But from the clinical point of view, just to have a, a polymorphism in a particular gene identifies that gene as being important in the clinical process. And we found SNPs in um, olfactory genes um, associated with multiple cancers, suggesting that the cancer cells almost have little noses and are sniffing around looking for the right molecules to tell them either to divide or to stop dividing. And those would be great uh, drug targets because you could basically design a drug that smelled like vanilla that would turn off uh, a cancer cell. It, would, it wouldn't be toxic. It would be highly specific. So that's an exciting class of drug targets that we found that others are now starting to find. We've got several dozen um, that we found back in 2005 when we last got our funding. Another category um, are the usual suspects, Wnt and Notch and, and catenins. So we're confident that our data is real. Um, and, uh, 
but we can do two things with this data. Number one, we can predict at any stage in a person's life what tumor they're going to get. So we we found six tumors, uh, their associations with SNPs, and we can we can predict among Caucasians, and it may apply to Indian Caucasians as well, but American and European Caucasians, because that's the group we started with, um, we can predict breast, colon, lung, ovary, pancreas, and prostate. And we've got a prospective trial running right now. Um, we would take people's uh, whole genome sequence that they can get done in companies in California, for example, for under $2,000. And then uh, their company will, will send us the sequence, we'll analyze it for another $1,000 and then give them the result about which tumor to look for. And um, what that'll do is transform um, cancer. So instead of having uh, colonoscopy and mammography for just two cancers and a PSA for prostate cancer, we can um, tell people to get uh, annual screens for lung cancer, ovary, and pancreas, which currently are big killers because nobody has any early warning for those three. And they often occur, um, you know, without any symptoms until late stage when they're in incurable. So the hope is that we're going to start um, uh, telling people which cancer to look for and that they'll use MRIs or CAT scans or or even PET scans and pick up small nodules in their pancreas or their ovary or their lung when it's still small enough to be completely resected surgically. Because cutting out the rotten fruit is still the best surgical, is still the best uh, therapeutic approach to cancer. Before it spread, just cut out the rotten little piece of your fruit and eat the rest of the fruit is, is basically the best way to treat cancer. So are, it seems that there are a lot of you know people uh, going that path because they discover that they have this gene that would cause breast cancer or other types of cancer and they are you know going towards removing entirely their organ and that is uh, is that the right approach though i mean see genes having those genes that are going to cause cancer is one thing but like you said there is not enough data or not enough knowledge out there for the gene expression under what conditions the gene you know would uh, activate and you know express to create that kind of tumors so don't you think we should also integrate the environmental uh, science into uh, the integrate with genomic data so that we can have effective uh, uh, approach towards not removing the organs but preventing that gene to express oh absolutely Absolutely, and breast cancer is a perfect example because it's clear that estrogen uh, plays a huge role um, for one in eight women to, to get breast cancer and for the incidence to be rising and supposedly it's because of the estrogenic effects of pesticides, which are in widespread use now in agriculture, um, you know, that are killing all the frogs, uh, that kind of stuff um, certainly makes sense. But uh, speaking of breast cancer, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which were discovered um, in the 90s, um, and which um, Angelina Jolie made famous by, by having a, a preemptive bilateral mastectomy when she found she had the gene, um, it, we, we 
pick up, I think, the other 95% of breast cancer. So only 5% of breast cancer comes from the BRCA genes. And they do have strong penetrance. I don't think it's 100%. It's closer to 70%. But um, in somebody who has a strong family history and who's got a BRCA gene, uh, it doesn't, it wouldn't, uh, be a, a crazy thing to get a bilateral mastectomy. But what I would love to do is actually find ways to prevent breast cancers from occurring so that people don't have to have disfiguring surgery um, because, uh, you know, there ought to be better ways. So one thing that we found with all these SNPs um, that seem to involve, you know, maybe 3,000 genes and we were only looking at a third of the genome at the time. So maybe 10,000 genes are involved in, in a polygenic disease like cancer, but we only have 25,000 genes or 30 at the most. So we're talking about a half to a third of the genome involved in a single disease. The only cell program that's that big is differentiation. So I think what cancer is, is a failure of differentiation. Differentiation, which occurred perfectly fine in the patient's life during embryonic life. But at that time, you have to remember, there were all these transcription factors that were laid down beautifully in, in stripes. Um, and in adult life, when there's apoptosis, loss of, loss of tissue, these tissue stem cells that somehow sense the loss and then start proliferating are essentially operating without traffic signs. So they don't have transcription factors laid down in fields all around them like the embryo did. And they're on their own. And so then what seems to be the case is that people who have too much gas have uh, overexpressed their oncogenes and too little in the way of breaks, they underexpress their tumor suppressor genes. Um, they're the ones who get cancer. And it's not people who have uh, amino acid changes in the key players like P53 or RB or von Hippolindau, because they cause families with very high penetrance of disease. But sporadic cancer seems to be an accumulation of, of subtle uh, increases in the level of multiple uh, oncogenes and decrease in the level of multiple growth inhibitors. I see. That's uh, very interesting information. And uh, it seems that we have come a long way in understanding not only the cause, I mean, the, how to treat diabetes or, you know, renal problems, but also cancer, something as big as cancer. And uh, it seems we have come a long way in understanding the cancer. But while this revolution that has been promised since the human genome was first published is on its way in at least you know understanding the diseases understanding the genomic data of the disease what is necessary or what is lacking that is uh, not letting the whole genomic medicine be a reality and a routine uh, we talked about the politics of it the supply chain and uh, why the uh, industry decision makers are trying to keep the status quo and not uh, uh, innovate or not try to go towards patient-centric model and just focus on the profit. But are there any other technical, non-technical uh, challenges that the genomic medicine is facing and that is not letting it become a reality? The only 
difficulties that genomic medicine is facing are social difficulties. So the technique could not be simpler. We're talking about association studies. There's nothing mathematically difficult about a two by two square where the odds ratio is just the, um, is one cross product divided by the other cross product. I mean, you know, two year, second graders, third graders could easily be doing this. This is not technically difficult. The, um, you know, you d whole genome sequences are now available for under two grand. So that's a huge milestone. And in fact, what everybody's gonna be doing from now on is getting their whole genome sequence, uh, per, you know, done, and then they'll they'll keep that for the rest of their lives, and they'll submit it to companies like mine whenever they come up with a new way to analyze genomes and predict what a person's going to get. So we're just at the very beginning of this. We can do two thirds of cancer, excluding skin cancers, which are far more numerous, but easy to cut off. Um, but we haven't done it for dementias yet. And basically what we're trying to do is get this online in the next five years in time for baby boomers like me, um, maybe not our parents, but certainly us to, to take advantage of it and, you know, and not die from what our parents died of. Now, what's stopping us is this status quo of healthcare. You know, I said that it's been, it's been corrupted over the last 50 years. Every aspect of it has been corrupted. So for example, we rely on, on uh, or we used to rely on publicly funded research, the NIH, the MRC, um, to do, to solve diseases. Well, now uh, publicly funded research is funding so few people, well under 10%, that it has become crony science. And the only people who get funded are doing make work projects that never advance the field to actually take out a clinical disease. And they've been told since the 60s at the NIH and the MRC quickly followed suit that they had to understand mechanism, that clinical research was off limits and that model systems were the only things that they could study because you had to understand all the intricacies of a model system before you could dare to advance to humans. And humans were, it, it became better in IRBs and, and uh, human research circles. It became better to just let people die than God forbid experiment on them. And yet that's how medicine advanced in the 20s and 30s, case reports, were taken seriously and people would change their, their therapeutic behavior as physicians based on the most exciting recent case report. Now case reports aren't even published. And uh, the only studies that ever get done are these 40 and $50 million studies that either the NIH does once every decade or drug companies used to do. Now the drug company industry is going under and there is essentially no clinical research being done at all. This is a perfect solution for the status quo. So what I think is gonna happen, I think we're in the midst of a huge revolution. And I actually fancy myself the George Washington of this healthcare revolution. I think what's gonna happen is all the authorities have, have missed the boat. I know they've missed the boat for the last 30 years. Um, and they haven't done a thing to advance genomics 
into the clinic. Because by now, the world should already be dialysis free. The 90% of people I can't prevent from, from kidney failure should all be getting a cadaver transplant because the numbers are right. In the US, there are 13,000 cadaver transplants. But if I can prevent 90,000 renal patients leaving only 10,000 who need a kidney, they could all get a cadaver kidney. We wouldn't need living donors anymore. We wouldn't need these absurd, you know, 10 people long donor chains. We wouldn't be uh, selling organs or discussing the sale of organs from live people. Um, we wouldn't be spending billions of, of rupees on, on new dialysis units, a totally obsolete approach to a disease that should have been prevented 20 years ago. Well, it is very, very unfortunate. You know, the reality of the current healthcare system is very unfortunate to hear about these kind of uh, challenges that any innovator or scientist is facing. But the world is becoming so small. We don't have to focus only on United States or India or, or any other specific country. There are so many countries where, you know, uh, a revolutionary approach like this should be, you know, welcoming. So, are, is your focus only on uh, US or you know India or what other countries are you focusing on? I'm focusing on all 200 and and um, I think it's uh, it's an opportunity for a smaller country like Slovenia, for example, which was very interested in this. The journalists in Slovenia want me to write a piece uh, for their doctors. Uh, I think what's going to happen is that. Uh, nimbler countries that aren't so heavily invested in these archaic iron lungs uh, like the U.S. and, and, and perhaps India um, are going to leap ahead, leapfrog ahead in terms of patient outcomes. And their countries are going to become healthier places to live. And, and the first world is going to be the last place uh, with good healthcare outcomes, just as the U.S. already is lagging behind all other industrialized countries in terms of patient outcomes. Yes, very true, very true. Now, uh, we we have talked about the whole genome sequencing and all the ability to diagnose diseases based on the genomic data. But how will pharmacogenomics reshape the healthcare? What, what are your uh, thoughts on that? Pharmacogenomics is, um, I think, way overhyped. So pharmacogenomics uh, was put forward in the 50s um, as a great way to avoid toxic effects of drugs because you'd see who the fast metabolizers were, who the slow metabolizers were, and you'd use lower drugs, uh, lower drug doses for the slow metabolizers. And um, where it's used, uh, or where the biggest hope now is um, for anticoagulation, so things like Coumadin. The, the, the reality is doctors have been using Coumadin and statins um, for decades. Um, and in, in some cases, drugs like digoxin for, for centuries. And uh, the normal rule is, you know, check early after starting a drug. And if you see there's toxicity, cut the dose. So uh, if liver function tests go up a month after starting a statin, uh, you, you either decrease the dose or give them a holiday off that statin or, or uh, forget statins altogether. 
And uh, so there's no reason for a genomic test for whether people can metabolize statins well or not. There's no reason for a genomic test for Coumadin because you just lower the dose of, of Coumadin if the pro-time is high. So uh, these tests are extremely expensive. They're like a thousand bucks each. They have not penetrated the clinical market. I can tell you, certainly not primary care, managed care, because they're way too expensive and they're way too useless, clinically speaking. I think the real clinical power from genomics is going to be in, in um, predicting disease and in providing good drug targets. And, and I think it's actually going to de-risk uh, drug discovery and drug development. And the reason I say this is because this mechanistic-based research that the NIH has been promoting and which all the um, academics... Uh, to get their NIH grants had to go along with, and all the drug companies which hired these academics, you know, for their high-paying scientific jobs in big pharma, everybody has drunk the same Kool-Aid, which is, um, you know, do work with a model system in mice or preferably roundworms, C. elegans, and um, and then find something that works and soft pedal the toxicity. And so that's why people get very excited about efficacy, but it's not until large numbers of patients are involved, like phase three trials, that the these rare toxicities come out and ruin the drug and ruin the research and ruin the share price of the company. But what genomics offers is hundreds, if not thousands of genes as targets. Um, and so you can screen first for toxicity and throw away the target if your compounds are all turning out to be toxic and go to the next target, knowing that even if you had, you know, 99.9% toxic outcome, you'd have a thousand targets at least. And that thousandth target would not, would not create a toxic environment and would also be efficacious because the target came out of people. It, it was genomic epidemiology. It came out of clinical disease. And it, that gene might not ever have been picked up in a model system. The ACEDD genotype doesn't exist in species below humans. Um, but the fact that it's important in the human population means it's going to be important for disease. In other words, what genomics does is basically say that all previous approaches to biomedical research are obsolete, that human beings are the proper study of man, to quote Rousseau or, or some French philosopher, and um, that uh, the cost of healthcare and the outcomes from healthcare are going to get dramatically better. And whoever recognizes this is going to win. I mean, if I were an insurance company, all I would do is um, is basically focus on prevention and keeping people out of the hospital. What managed care says it does, but in fact, managed care gets all its money from hospitals. And they want costs to go up every year because they're pass-throughs. They use last year's costs as an excuse to raise premiums the following year. They're all using a very old model Yes. Of, uh, of care. And the new model is cheap, preventive, everybody stays happy and healthy and working. 
And that's what people need to do to, to make it while they're alive and old these days, because we're not going to have social security anymore. Very true, very true that we do need to have a real focus on a real prevention, not the current, you know, definition of uh, healthcare prevention, which is more focused on just diagnosing disease or recruiting, you know, the people, you know, with all kinds of diseases. That is not prevention. We have to focus on true prevention. And uh, that is where uh, everyone's effort should be. But it's not going to be easy. So what would you like to change? Because you are, we are talking about an industry that is the second largest, you know, if you talk about United States, you know, after defense, it is the biggest, the second largest, you know, industry with many, many stakeholders, you know, many, uh, the current supply chain, the people where the profit is being made to change all that is going to require huge effort. We talked about many different, you know, uh, angles to that, but where would you like change happening? The most important change that needs to happen to be able to take a positive step forward towards uh, establishing a truly preventive and truly uh, effective model of uh, medicine and healthcare? It's very simple to change this. Um, basically, anybody who has high blood pressure um, and wants to stay off the kidney machine can just go to the website under my name. And I've been taking care of people around the world by email for um, 15 years already. So uh, change can happen one patient at a time. The only problem has been getting the word out. And I have to say, this is the first time um, that anybody has actually wanted me on their show, uh, even though I've been calling up journalists, you know, m multiple times, emailing them. This is the first time in probably 20 years that anybody's actually wanted me to talk to them. So I, I have to congratulate you because I think if there is this revolution that I've been dreaming of for 20 years, it's because of you. Well, I'm not a journalist. That's where your answer is. And we are a risk management, uh, uh, risk, uh, management think tank. We think about the strategic risk facing nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. And this is our job. This is my job to identify the risk that, uh, you know, we need to effectively manage if we want to have a sustainable, you know, secure uh, models or systems uh, across nations. And uh, uh, we really, you know, are looking for identifying risk across, you know, uh, we are nonpartisan. We don't belong to any political ideology. We don't, uh, uh, we do not get funded by anyone. So we, our focus is purely to remain, you know, neutral, nonpartisan, and focus on the risk, and to provide and create the education and awareness. Uh, and uh, we are just, you know, uh, one small voice. But I hope that, you know, uh, we can make a difference by creating this kind of risk roundup dialogues, and everyone across the, the key decision makers across nations get to, you know, uh, have a very objective viewpoint about the reality of our current systems, uh, not just healthcare system, but all different systems, and uh, are able to take a positive step, informed decision, you know, based on the intelligence we are providing them. So uh, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about genomic medicine and your organization's efforts in helping making sense of these complex challenges facing healthcare industry? 
Well, um, I think um, it, it's a very simple message. Um, I, I have less confidence in you than you in our leaders. I think um, people voting with their feet, voting with their mouse, um, you know, to go to some websites rather than others are actually going to save the world, not the leaders who were elected um, really by kind of oligarchs because they had drunk the Kool-Aid and, and uh, were not radicals and were not going to upset the beautiful status quo that, that they've been uh, welcomed into. So I don't think leaders are going to do squat. And actually, I've been tremendously disappointed by the medical profession and by the public health profession, which is a shadow of its former self. But I am hopeful, like you, uh, because of technology and the fact that individual patients um, can see stuff like this, that they don't have to rely on the WHO, which has been useless, or the Organization for American States, or any of the public health authorities that used to exist 100 years ago, 50 years ago, um, they have become completely complicit in in this medical slavery of dialysis. Um, and so I have um, no respect for them, and I have no expectation that they'll change. Um, on the other hand, I do expect the world to become dialysis-free within the next five to ten years. And the simple way for that to happen is for word uh, of, of Genomed, uh, and word of my paper to get out. And uh, and it's simple as pie to get on the right treatment. It, it takes less than a month. It can be done very cheaply. Um, I'm happy to work with people who are poor because most of the people on earth who go on in renal failure are poor, but they all have cell phones. And so uh, we're prepared to text with anybody on a cell phone about what drugs to take. The drugs that we're pushing are uh, generic and available freely in any drugstore on earth, or they soon will be, but they could be. I mean, they're, they are cheap and generic and, and uh, safe. Uh, so we've got a treatment that everybody can avail themselves of, can find out about, uh, get detailed instructions on how to use and pick up from their pharmacist. And we'd like to enlist pharmacists in identifying and helping us uh, manage people's blood pressure, because that's really the only thing you have to measure. And this works for diabetics with high blood pressure, as, as well as people with just high blood pressure, no diabetes. The one group that I haven't done this dialysis prevention with yet are Pacific Islanders and Amerindians who have no blood pressure. Uh, who are normotensive but have uh, wicked diabetes, you know, very high rates, 50% rate of diabetes. And there I'm hopeful that high-dose um, son of ACE inhibitor called ARB, like Losartan or Herbosartan, all these Sartan drugs, I'm hopeful that high doses of them will do what high doses of Quinepril do for uh, hypertensive. So I am hopeful that we can eliminate the burden of dialysis soon. And I'd like to, um, I'd like to get going on cancers, not just in whites, but all ethnic groups. And I'd like to uh, find the SNPs for dementia and, um, and other diseases. I'd like to go after childhood diseases and uh, modifier genes for 
uh, Mendelian disorders that are caused by a single gene, but it's undruggable. It's a protein that's missing that you can't replace pharmacologically. But there are modifier genes that make some cystic fibrosis get diagnosed at birth, and other cystic fibrosis doesn't even get diagnosed till 30 or 40, if at all. So there are other genes that interact with the, the causative gene that are um, valuable targets to know about, and we can find them. I'm confident we can find all disease-associated genes, or maybe not all, but most of them, uh, with our fishing net of SNPs, uh, which is what we used to see if we could find one SNP with, with one cancer. We found 5,000 SNPs with six cancers. So we were like amazingly more successful than we had even hoped. And I think we've got a very good fishing net for finding these elusive little single letter uh, polymorphisms. And I think we'd be a good investment for anybody who wanted to take over healthcare. Well, that's uh, really good to know. And uh, what a noble goal to uh, have to make the world dialysis free in the coming years. That's a really noble goal. And I hope uh, that you succeed in uh, your goal, uh, primary goal, and then, you know, work towards uh, making difference in other areas. But thank you so much, Dr. Moskowitz, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on genomic medicine and our the challenges that... Uh, innovators like you are facing all across nations and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the these complex challenges facing the healthcare industry today and in the coming tomorrow and the role genomic medicine can play in uh, uh, helping reverse that. So even if a single individual across nations, single decision maker can come up with an idea to advance this genomic medicine based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today, this discount of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. My pleasure. Wonderful. So privacy and security seems to be critical if genomic medicine is to successfully integrate into healthcare. Uh, other, in addition to many other complex challenges we are facing uh, across nations as far as the healthcare industry goes, but risk group cybersecurity, geosecurity and space security risk research centers are created to identify, evaluate and manage the risk-facing NGIO in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup webcast or to hear Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.